Welcome to the I Dare You podcast by United Against Human Trafficking. I'm your host, Elaine Andino, and we believe that together we can end exploitation. Welcome to the podcast. Today, I am excited to announce that we have two guests with us in the studio. We have our own CEO, Tamika Walker, who was with me on our very first podcast and is joining us this year to wrap up our last podcast of the year. Tamika, welcome. Hi. So I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much, Elaine. And we also have Meenal Patel Davis. She is the director of the Mayor's Office of Human Trafficking and Domestic Violence. She has actually crafted and pioneered the city of Houston's comprehensive and collaborative approach to combating human trafficking here in our city. So we are excited to have her and to dive into what the movement has been like over the last six years and where we think it's going. So welcome, Meenal. Yeah, thanks for having me, Elaine. Happy to be here. I'm so excited to dive into this conversation. We have all worked together for a really long time over the last six years, and the movement has changed a lot in Houston from 2015 when, Tamika, you first joined United Against Human Trafficking, and Meenal, you first joined the mayor's office um, in 2015. So excited to kind of talk about where we've been, where we're going, and kind of some of the problems of the city and the solutions that we've seen. But before we do that, Meenal, we'd love to hear a little bit about you and how, where you come from and how you ended up here in Houston fighting trafficking. Yeah, it's a good first question. I hate talking about myself, but I grew up in New York City. I was born and raised in an immigrant family um, of East Asian or East Indian descent. And so there's a lot of things you see if you have insight into what is typically an Indian community. Um, from the differences in the way they sometimes treat boys and girls and things like that. So I've always been very passionate about women's issues or anything that mostly impacts women and girls. Of course, we all know trafficking impacts boys as well. Um, But if you're asking about myself and why I'm interested and the things I've experienced that led me to being passionate about trafficking, that's the foundation of who I am. And so you see a lot of things and there's a lot of injustice in what you see from, you know, your big brother not having to do the dishes or take out the garbage or anything, but study versus where there's a lot of different pressures on you, or I should say myself as a young Indian girl. So I defied all of that, didn't do any of that stuff and regretted it deeply when I got married because you need to know how to do the dishes and cook and all of that (laughs) when you get married. Um, But basically that really led me to my passions. And so I started to volunteer with New York Women's Foundation in New York um, and did a lot of different things, mentored a lot of young women, did a lot of fundraising for them. And it was there that I heard my first survivor or overcomer story. And it was a 16-year-old girl who had survived a brutal beating by her trafficker in Brooklyn, had been left for dead, got services through the famous organization GEMS run Mm -hmm. by Rachel Lloyd in New York City and ended up graduating um, valedictorian of her high school class. And I remember how incredibly powerful that was. And so I'd always known about trafficking in India. Um, I guess I identified more with being American. And so India also felt very far away. You know, if you're 18 years old or 22 trying to do something or even 28 trying to do something. And so I started to volunteer or pursue volunteer opportunities in New York. Found a few, but it wasn't until I moved to Houston that things really took off where I was lucky enough to be paid to do what I'm most passionate about. So you, when you moved here, we didn't have a plan on how to fight human trafficking. In fact, there wasn't a response from a mayor's office anywhere in the U.S. on how to fight human trafficking. So 
what really was the driving force for you to fight human trafficking through a mayor's office? Yeah, I'll tell you about how it happened a little bit. So I first moved here and was the executive director of a small nonprofit called CompuDopt, which is a much larger nonprofit now. Um, I'm thrilled with everything the new executive director. She's been there a long time now, but uh, that she's done since I left. Um, So I was there. I met the mayor pro tem at the time of the city, who was our now sheriff, Ed Gonzalez, Mm -hmm. um, because CompuDopt was in his district. And we had actually, the story is not a story a lot of people know, but we'd gotten a lawn mowing ticket, and my board wanted me to have it resolved with the council member. So I ended up calling Ed Gonzalez's office to try to make sure he knew what we do to help us not have this remediation lawn mowing ticket. And he came for a visit, and we gave him a tour. No one mentioned the lawn mowing ticket, thank God. (laughs) Um, but basically he took a liking to me in the 30 minute tour and he noted my leadership skills and abilities and said, I'd really like to get you plugged into the city of Houston. It's what I call a very divine life changing moment because he meant what he said and he delivered. And so he asked me at a lunch, you know, what are my passions? What do I like? The sports authority, the bike lane commission or a trafficking task task force, excuse me. And I said, I would love to be on a trafficking task force. I looked those kinds of things up, and I didn't see any kind of website presence. Um, and he said, okay, we'll send your resume. And literally, I sent it a few hours later after talking to my board. They were like, whatever you need to do, we know you'll get the job done here. And four hours after that, my husband and I were at dinner, and I got an email that I'd been appointed to the mayor's anti-trafficking task force. Oh my gosh. Exactly. That's literally how it happened. And so to this day, I have that lawn mowing ticket in my drawer at City Hall in my desk. Um, It's right there. It's a big yellow remedial kind of sign. And I keep it as a reminder because we got that lawn mowing ticket on the very first day of my job at CompuDopt. And on the very first day, there was already a plan set in place for me to meet Ed Gonzalez, who's our sheriff now. And for me to end up where I've ended up. So it's just a very special reminder to me. That's amazing. Uh-huh. I love I that story. story. Can I say that on the podcast? Yeah. Yeah. That is yeah. beautiful. Yeah. I have it in my desk. I, I can oh, show it to so you anytime you're there. Yeah. yeah. I love that. Yeah. 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 So he got me appointed that night. And then I served as a volunteer member for two months. And when I say I served, I mean I served. Mm-hmm. I taught myself everything about trafficking. I had thousands of pages of research that I had printed and I would read on nights and weekends. I immersed myself in it. I taught myself the legal framework, the UN Palermo Protocol. I literally taught myself everything Um, and suggested a number of changes as a member. And literally two months after doing a lot of different work and assignment with Ed Gonzalez's support on everything I suggested, Um, the former chair who was the former executive director of this organization, uh, moved to Colorado and Mayor Parker was the mayor at the time. And she appointed me chair of the human trafficking task force also as a volunteer. So I did that for six months. I chaired it. We like tripled the size of the task force in those first six months. We reorganized it and we started to do different policy type stuff, or just start to look at it with the help of a gentleman named Terrence O'Neill, who's the director of the mayor's office of new immigrants, Uh, an amazing mind. Um, And so he's a brilliant strategist. And so I had a lot of help. And so he kind of helped, like, how come the health department's not there? How come procurement's not involved? How come airports isn't involved? He's someone who very early on saw that it touched a lot of different things that weren't being leveraged. 
So we basically revamped it. Mayor Parker approved the whole thing. We invited people. We had our first big meeting. She came to speak. And we did a lot of different work um, those first six months. I went to brief the mayor as a volunteer. And there had been a lot of pressure from the faith-based community. They'd written about 5,000 letters to the mayor's office, which is great. Um, The mayor's office had them all cataloged. You know, people are hesitant to do something like that, but it's a good thing. Uh, They want to hear from constituents, and constituents that do that can drive policy. Mm -hmm. Um, So Elijah Rising, I believe, led that uh letter-writing campaign, because that was a little bit before my time. Um, And then there was a big push from the donor community led by Stardust Fund, um, which is, you know, the president there is Kyle Wright, which a lot of people will know in the space. And so... Those two things converged, and then I think Mayor Parker saw what she thought was the right person should she establish the first office like this in the United States. So six months later, she decided to establish that office. It was initially a special advisor to the mayor on human trafficking Mm -hmm. position, and she asked me if I would fill it. And I was basically like, hell yes. (laughs) I I would love to fill it. And I said that without knowing what it would look like, without knowing what it would be like to work in politics, without ever having worked for a mayor before. Um, But I knew I could do it. I just knew I could do it. Um, And it was, you know... It was an interesting, long journey. The rest yeah. is history. The rest is history. Today, no, and I love that. Okay, so that's such a beautiful setup to how you started in here, and it was at the same time you started, yeah. which we might have talked a little bit on the podcast the first time around, but I would love to touch base with you on that. Just You literally had left your job. You were, you were figuring out where you were going next. You joined here, so you can talk a little bit about that, but I'd love to hear from your perspective what the nonprofit space was like, because... Clearly, the mayor's mayoral's office was just beginning to look at this in a new light. So, what was it like from a nonprofit space in yeah. 2015? It was it was so beautiful. I remember actually the first time that I met me, and it was early on. I want to think say it was one of the first meetings I went to, and I remember going to uh, the council meeting, and I was like, "Wait a second, there's a lot of guns in this room." I hadn't been in this. <laughs> had seen that many law enforcement officers in the same room in my life. And I remember literally thinking, this is a whole different experience. I've been in nonprofit work for like 20 years. At that point, maybe like 17 or so years, 16, 17 years. And so I remember uh, at the end of the meeting, I was like, I've got to talk to her. And I literally, at the end of the meeting, you were in the parking lot. I don't know if you remember Mino. And I was like, Mino, I'm Tamika. I just started at United Against Human Trafficking. We should have lunch. And you were like, Okay. <laughs> Works for me. Sure, yeah. And you were so tender. It was just something about you that I was drawn to. And I think a piece of it was just that synergy around feeling uh, connected. And I was immediately uh, drawn to Mino's presence and how she, you know, communicated. I felt uh, it was very professional, very um, on point. And I say that because the space at that time was very siloed, okay, Mm -hmm. in full transparency. There was a lot of work that was needed to happen in the movement around nonprofits coming together. And as an organization leading the coalition, our coalition, I wanted to make sure that everything I did, because that's naturally who I am as a Mm -hmm. unifier, wanting folks to connect, you know, focusing on our things that we have in common, not the things that we have that are different. And so for me, it was finding a space where I could feel safe. Mm-hmm. Because I was a new kid on the block. I mean, people didn't know me. Uh, full ch- I was, you know, really trying to walk into a space. I was one of the only, if only, African-Americans in the space mm-hmm. doing the work at that time. Definitely the uh, only one. Definitely the in the leadership mm-hmm. role. Um, and what I mean by that, leading in the organization and in, the, in those critical spaces where you can actually impact change in systems. 
And so to have another woman of color doing some of the same work at the city was really important to me because I felt safe. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we as an organization really were, we had changed our name about four or five months before I got there from Houston Rescue and Restore Coalition to United Against Human Trafficking. Mm -hmm. So before I joined United Against Human Trafficking, I was on a, like a sabbatical. I had been uh, talking to God Mm -hmm. about what was my next move. I didn't know if I was going to be doing, I think I've shared my story about mercy shifts. I had really a desire to be doing things internationally. I'd already applied and, uh, and then uh, Ebola came and I couldn't go to Africa. (laughs) I was like, really? Well, where am I supposed to go to Africa? What's going on? But with that being said, he already had kind of how your story about the long war ticket, the ticket thing you were working through. It was so divine. My, interview that I did with the board of directors at that time was actually at a location of a site where I actually had participated in a silent retreat when I was trying to decide what my next step was. And I was like, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. So when we talk about how things are orchestrated in the movement, we ha- I think it's important to always honor those initial stories. And I think that's why I've always um, wanted to tell that story. And I'm so grateful today that I can share that story about how I got here and how it's going to be seven years in February and how much more we've done as an organization and as a movement uh, in the community. So the community is so much more connected in my belief system from where we were in 2015, 2014. Uh, Our coalition is really, really pushing for really impactful um, work Mm -hmm. around, particularly around DEI. Uh, The last time I was on the podcast, it was shortly after George Floyd was murdered. And as an organization, we have always led the, in that space around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I think that as, as a movement, we're growing mm-hmm. in our understanding about how we properly serve uh, survivors and overcomers of human trafficking. And the bare minimum is to understand the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so I think it's important to talk about how, as a movement, we really begin to shift. We still have work to do, but mm-hmm. I have seen that. The fact that I can sit in the seat that I'm sitting in as an African-American woman for almost seven years speaks to how some of that has shifted. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's start with some questions about Houston. So okay. these are questions that I think all of us get all the time. Meenal, tell us about, in general, Houston's human trafficking problem and why do you think that we have a problem? There's a lot of a lot of reasoning and, and myths or ideas about why we have a trafficking problem. But from where you sit and what do you see, and and what is the extent of the human trafficking problem here, especially in comparison to other places? Okay, so you'll probably have to remind me of all three parts of that question. Yeah, sure. The why we have a problem is very easy. Mm-hmm. Um, one I, one thing I always like to say, of course, we're only concerned with Houston, but it's a problem that cities share across the country. Yeah. This doesn't only happen here in Houston. We're the fourth largest city. Do we likely have the fourth largest urban trafficking problem? Sure. Do we have the number one problem in the world? No. Anyone who's been to Bombay, India can tell you no. Um, Anyone who's been to New York and knows that there's 8 million people there versus our 2 million here, just logically. So the reason we have a trafficking problem is people are greedy and they put profit over people's lives and decency towards other people. Um, people have depraved minds. That is the only reason that something like this would would exist. They also put themselves over and their needs over humanity. That's the reason it happens. Now, if we're going to talk about, 
you know, and then, you know, I will also say there is systemic racism, racism and lack of opportunity, right? If we're talking about traffickers that are of color, sure. But I'm not very sympathetic really to any of that. I am otherwise in every other context, but I'm not when it comes to trafficking. You have to draw the line somewhere of what even all of the injustices we've experienced would cause us to engage in or do. And so it's a lack of human decency. And we see it in every arena, in every space, um, in the last few years especially. We can't even make a decent, common decision around a pandemic, okay? So for me, it's a lack of decency. Um, it's, and it's, it's a spirit of self, quite frankly, that causes people to only think of themselves and what they need and what they will do to get what they want or need. That's my answer to why. Um, the scale and scope of the problem in Houston, no one can answer that question without a prevalence or scope study being conducted. Those are very expensive studies. We have not had the funds ever to conduct a study like that. Um, you have to do a baseline, cost a million dollars at least, likely two million. And then once you've done a few things, you have to have another study done also at two million. So nobody knows the prevalence and scope. Where the rhetoric comes from um, is, you know, Houston's number one in trafficking. That is a very misinformed statement that I have seen repeated again and again and again. And I think the problem is that we as constituents, we're passive listeners. If someone says it, we listen, we think it's the truth, and then we just repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. I can't tell you how many fundraisers, how many press conferences I've been, been at that people are not experts, but they repeat it and they repeat it and repeat it. That number comes from one place, and it's the fact that we're the number one in calls to the National Human Trafficking Dip Hotline. Well, you want to be number one. You want a community that's aware. You want a community that can recognize it. You want Polaris on the other end when they're picking up these calls. They're the organization that run the hotlines. You want them to be able to say, yes, that sounds like a trafficking case. That means organizations like yours, Tamika, the mayor's office, we've done our job. We ran a media campaign with United Against Human Trafficking. In fact, Tamika granted us like the first seed funding because we had no money back then. Right. And we couldn't have done it if she didn't put that money on the table. And then other money came. But it's because she put the money on the table and I didn't have anything but fifty thousand dollars that I needed to stretch me the whole year. But when you did it, every all of these donors came in. And so we it didn't cost the city anything but three thousand dollars. But the point is that media campaign generated 90 million impressions in the city of two point one million. You need about three or four impressions to make an impression. So we did that. And that is the year that we ended up being number one. So we knew we were going to get negative blowback. We knew we were going to get negative publicity. And Mayor Turner always does the thing that's right. And I warned him about that. They're going to say this. They're going to say that. He said, we have to do it. So we did it. We pushed the calls up. We increased calls to the tip hotline by 80%. We increased cases confirmed by 61% in an eight-month period. That is something Houstonians should be proud of. How it has turned into the fact that we have the number one problem in the country is beyond me. Now, the other thing is that this movement is very prone, and everyone in it is to, is very prone to creating and holding on to a mindset. Okay? So if a DOJ report in 2005 said because of I-10 and because of the airports and because we're ethnically diverse, why are we still talking about that in 2021? Okay? That cannot be the same reasons a problem continues to exist. Mm -hmm. And those things are not unique to Houston. I also want to know, do you think that people say those things because of the lack of studies so we don't have anything else to go to? What else are we going to say? 
Don't say it if it's not worth saying. That's fine. You yes, are asking us, you know what I'm saying? Like if the if the government is asking us, you want a grant to fight human trafficking in your city, you have to state the problem and tell us why you have a problem. What are we going to say other than we're ethnically diverse, we're, we're the fourth largest city in the country, we have all these interstates? Because there's not being studies done to show any other reason. I mean, there, there's a lot of subtext to what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Interstate highways? I mean, there's lots of trafficking that happens without interstate highways or the use of interstate highways, right? right? You have familial trafficking. You have the, the pimps in the Bissonette area live in foreign park apartments True. oftentimes. Right. And the, they force women to walk, walk on the streets nearby. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just paints a picture of what trafficking is really like in a different kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that if we want to do a scope or a problem statement, you can do it without citing a 2005 report, right? Mm-hmm. Especially after you've gotten and done some work, you know. I'm not sure I have the best answer to your question either. But And we've written problem statements. I wish I could remember what some of them were, but we don't use any of that stuff. We don't use any of that stuff. So what I've started using is the sheer amount of sexually oriented businesses that we have here. That's what I thought Beagle was going to say. Right. That's my and I'm going to. Oh, okay. Yeah. okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because we do have, I mean, I've lived in D.C., I've lived in Seoul. There are, are a lot in South Korea and Seoul, but living in D.C., Virginia, it's not nearly as prominent there. I'm not saying it doesn't mm-hmm. exist, but it is so much more hidden, whereas Literally, the window I'm looking at right now, I can point to three strip clubs that I can see out of this window, mm-hmm. which is not the same. I mean, I grew up here, so you think it's normal until you go live somewhere else. You're like, oh, every corner there's not a church or yeah. a strip club. Yeah. yeah. And so, and I know that people bring from other cities to work the strip mm-hmm. clubs so much here. So, mm-hmm. how do you feel like the sexually oriented businesses affect the problem here? Yeah. So, now to answer your question. What does it look like here in Houston? Mm -hmm. I can tell you based on facts that when I started, we had about 292 just illicit massage parlors. So that doesn't include the strip clubs or any other kind of sexually oriented Mm -hmm. business, okay? The only thing being done about them at the time was a prostitution-based approach Mm -hmm. by police. That means you have an undercover go in, they pose as a buyer, they arrest the woman. Mm -hmm. So... Let me answer your question first about what it looks like. So, you know, Polaris put out that study. I do like this one where they analyzed their tip hotline calls, 25 different industries. We're going to have all 25 of those industries in a big city like Houston. So if we take just the massage parlors, I know we have about anywhere from 200 to 230 now, even after all the work that we've done um, in addressing them and ticketing them. And who knows what it's like after COVID when you're not able to enforce as much, right? So 200, let's say four women inside of each of those. That's 800 people a day in our city, right? And then the number of times a buyer might go during lunch, you know, 12 to 2 p.m., we all know that. Um, So multiply that by 25. That's how I usually Mm -hmm. state the problem, but I'll never start with the DOJ study because I just don't see why that is even relevant. I think that it was relevant, and it was the thing to say in 2005 when the trafficking movement was burgeoning and yes. starting out because it was in the late 90s yep. that all of this started to happen at the federal level. Mm-hmm. So you're learning, but there should be an evolution to the learning, right. um, which is what I like to see. And I think using the SOBs is perfect, and that's what we've done too now that I remember. Yes. And then we say Polaris had 25 industries, right? Yep. Um, 20 of those exist in the city of Houston, and so there's a hidden aspect to this as well. Um, So that's how we'll normally say we're often pressed by the press. Give us a number. 
I'll never give them a number. I'd be lying if I did. But I'll give them a way to do math and say this is an estimate, a non-scientific estimate. And I think the point that you made a minute ago about that study was done, it came out in 2005. It was was done in the 90s when all of this was brand new to us. I mean, the trafficking laws and all came into effect in 2000. So comparatively, this is what I tell people all the time, comparatively to domestic violence or the homeless movement, this is so new as understanding the problem. We just gave it a name. We just started working on this the last 20 years. And so there is this steep learning curve as we're all working in this space. So we're just even trying to figure out what the problem is, how to figure out what the scope and size of it is, what it even means to be trafficked. I and mean, we think we all had misconceptions about what human trafficking was 20 years ago. I certainly know the average person. We're still undoing a lot of those myths. And so I think it's important for people as they come into this space to be open to the change you mentioned earlier, to take in new information, be willing to look at things differently, take in new information and adjust accordingly. Because if we keep operating the same way we were in 2005, we're not going to go anywhere. And we have ways, we have systems set up to get better information nowadays. Yeah, definitely. And I think the agility and the ability to evolve is a sign of leadership. Right. Right. Those are leadership characteristics. Mm -hmm. And if we stay in a movement that's lacking leaders, it will just go away and it will get unfunded and there'll still be people out there suffering in our city. What was sparking interest in me in the movement in the very beginning was I couldn't believe as I was studying, because I did a project in grad school on modern day slavery, Mm -hmm. had no clue that there was an issue in our world, in our city, in our country. And that was back in 2000. I graduated in 06, that was back in 2004, mm-hmm. and I hadn't even heard of it. So when I started doing this work, I knew that it was going to be so critical to honor that fact that we, that this was only illegal 20 years ago. And that's to, right now, back when I started, it was like 13, 12, 13 years. So you literally could traffic a human being in 2000 and before 1999 and not be legally responsible, not not have any repercussions. That blew my mind. Well, this was the TVPA. So before that, you had acts where it was illegal to do it, like the Mann Act and things like that. But those are in the 1800s and things like that. You even had Wilberforce. Um, but yes, the but, most modern well, that's, version. That's, more, that's what I'm yeah. talking about, because yeah. I'm sure legally you're a lawyer. Did y'all tell y'all she was a lawyer? Make sure I get that in the podcast. <laughs> Neil's a lawyer, yeah, just so you know. She's a JD. So she wanted to make sure y'all understood what I understand the law. And that's true, and I think that's important, but I, but I guess what I'm saying, just like the, I always compare it to domestic violence. Before, I mean, the movie The Burning Bed, for those who don't, don't in the audience who remember that, domestic violence was considered something you handled behind closed doors mm-hmm. between a man and his wife. You understand when police would come and just say, take care of that to, to his brother, to this, whoever it was. And I think that's the part that we have to all honor about the movement, that it is that young. It's 20 years. And the movement didn't even start when the law passed. I mean, how many organizations were there in place mm-hmm. moving forward and doing this great work? Mm-hmm. So I always try to bring a level of gentleness to the conversation around just how much we've accomplished in a short period of time, it's almost like thinking through the reality of how quickly things are happening in the natural, but they're happening even more quickly in the spiritual. Because this is a dark issue, okay? It's important to understand the depth of the darkness that's taking place when folks are being trafficked. And so I think it's easier 
for people to use studies like from the 2005 because it's easy for folks to think of it as something that is not as intense and not as depraved as you mentioned from the very beginning. Okay, so you want to be able to put a definition to it. You want to make it make sense. But the reality of it speaks to what Mino talked about in the very beginning about it's an individual human human issue. It's a lack of humanity. I was just having lunch with a partner. We were talking about the work that we were doing, and we went to the border. And he was like, Tamika, but this way he said, Tamika, but I bet there are some good coyotes out there. I said, what do you mean? He goes, some of those folks are probably doing it, and it's an equal transaction. You're, I'm getting you to another country. You're helping me. I said, and I explained to him, first, that's human smuggling. That's not human trafficking. But let me talk to you about that. But I was, we were having a very open conversation, and I said, there's no element of smuggling or trafficking that's decent, in my opinion. So how do you speak to people in the community who may think that a coyote, there may be some good ones out there? Because the reality of the the darkness of this issue around folks who have been trafficked, um, there's no light in it when, as it relates to what our role is and how we want to move forward as a movement. And that but, can be hard to comprehend for so many for, people. Exactly, because yeah. they he, they, he was trying to connect it. He right. was trying to understand. Right. And I said, he goes, it's, but it's transactional, isn't it? Like, Bart, like, you know, people do that. I pay you, you do this. And I was like, I said, well, you know, I said right. do you know how many raping, mm-hmm. I have told him, posts along the way? And women are ravaged along the way that are trying to make their way. And the coyotes are taking them that through those routes. He goes, yeah, I've heard of that. I said, so no, there's no decency in that experience for any human being. So. And it's the happy hooker myth also, you know, um, that has been pervasive in American culture. Transaction. They need the money for whatever reason. Go to or college. Pretty they, woman. Pretty woman. Yes, exactly. We're always, on, we're always, I think, coming against the um, bias that pretty woman has created for all of us. Uh, nobody's getting hurt. They want to do this. I'm giving them money for it. Not understanding the depth of depravity and what life for the person doing the act actually is. So let's bring it yeah. to a little bit to what the city's response is because. Houston, talking about what we can be proud of for Houston. Houston's the first city to ever have a response from a mayor's office. Mm -hmm. So normally we look at uh, trafficking through a law enforcement lens. And that is generally the first question people ask us is about law enforcement. So you came in, you're like, we're going to look at this from a different lens. Tell us what your approach was as a city to fight trafficking. We're going to pause here, take a bit of a break, and we're going to come back again tomorrow for part two of our conversation. Thank you and see you soon. Thank you for listening to I Dare You, a podcast by United Against Human Trafficking. Please like and subscribe to the podcast as well as share this with all of your friends and family. And we'd love to hear from you. Feel free to message us at podcast at uaht.org or you can find us on all social media platforms. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.